Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Uh, I want to thank you for releasing me last week. I don't know if all of you even knew I was gone, but uh, I spent an amazing week in a place called Barnabas Landing on a little island called Keats Island just off the uh, west coast of Canada, just across the water from Vancouver. It is a place of extraordinary physical beauty, um, just snow-capped mountains everywhere, old-growth rainforests, bald eagles just flying in circles, hunting above you, um, and this glacial bay of crystal-clear water. I was sitting on the dock, and seals were coming up and barking at me. It was just a really amazing place. But what made it more amazing than the physical beauty was nearly 20 young emerging leaders were gathered to go through the same experience I went through back in 2004. And the Aero Leadership Program is truly a remarkable thing. I can tell you that it is by far the single most formative experience I've been through in my Christian journey. And so much of who I am as a child of God and as a growingly healthy minister of God, I attribute to what God did in my life through Aero. And so it was my privilege this week to serve not as a participant, but as one of the on-site mentors and, re- and give into other people's lives the same things I received from other men. And so it was a real privilege. I watched God do some remarkable things in one week in the lives of these leaders, things that in months and months of walking together you might not see. When hearts come prepared for change, God powerfully moves, and I saw miracles happen in the lives of people I just met. And so I want you to know that whenever... Uh, This church releases me for ministry. Um, So often God takes that sacrifice and commitment of time and just does amazing things. And so I'm coming back. My heart is really, really full right now. But I'm also going to tell you that my body is completely gone. I mean, I thought that in the relaxing place I get a lot of rest. But the truth is we were really praying. I mean, one thing I love about Eros, we prayed so much for these young leaders. Every time we gathered, we're praying for them. And then, and we're doing pouring out ministry and, 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 you know, really speaking into their lives. And you're just drained every day. And I came back um, from the airport. Uh, Hans picked me up past midnight. I walked in my front door at 1.30 a.m. early Saturday morning. And then the next day, um, just poured into my family because I'd been gone for a week. And so I didn't start church work or the formal putting together of all this stuff or interns meeting and all that until around 7 o'clock last night. And I just couldn't sleep. And so I was up till about 4.30 in the morning. And so right now, I'm feeling a little discombobulated. If I lose my train of thought while I'm talking, please be gracious. And if you think of it, would you pray for me during this message? Because this is a message that all week I was meditating on this, this scripture um, while I was out in Canada. And I really believe that God wants us to hear him on this. We've been working through the the series, 100 Things You Should Know from the Bible. And it happened that this week, um, what came in the order was the crucifixion of Jesus. And originally, I thought to preach out of John and to tell the story of the crucifixion itself and some of the amazing nuances and little things that happened surrounding that day. But this this Friday is our Good Friday service, and we're going to have a chance at length to reflect on the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I hope that all of us will be together that day because I think it's going to be a powerful and important service in our spiritual journey this year. But I thought instead of talking about the crucifixion itself, I wanted to explore today from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to explore why the message of the cross matters. Why it's so important that our Christian faith, unlike any other faith system, is built completely upon this one historical event that a man named Jesus from a town called Nazareth died on a cross to cleanse the sins of all of humanity. There is no other religion that talks like this, yet the entire Christian faith is pinned firmly to this one truth without which there is nothing that distinguishes us from every other religion. Without this one message... We would be nothing more than every other religion that says, try to be a good guy or a good girl. Try to do more good than harm. 
and die, and maybe after a roll of the dice, you'll find yourself in an afterlife that is good. If it weren't for the message of the cross, that's all Christianity would be. And so I want to explore with you from this important text why the message of the cross matters and why it is so completely essential to who we are as Christians. Here's what the text says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Since the beginning of this series, Heath has been drawing a different illustration every week that captures the heart, the essence of the sermon being preached that week in this series. And every time blood appears in one of those illustrations, I've asked him to really make the blood red in contrast to the black and white sketches because it foreshadows the important blood of Jesus Christ, the only blood that really matters. Gallons and gallons, oceans of blood have been spilled over human history for all kinds of things. But there's only one blood that shed that ever really made a difference. And that's the blood of Jesus. And so this week, all that red in all those drawings finds its culmination in this picture. A picture of a broken man who is ripped apart torn to pieces, and God tells us that he did it for us. And we need to grapple with this message of the cross and understand why that matters and why, in fact, it is so important that we receive what Jesus did as for us. I want to give you two main observations from this text this morning. And the first is that the message of the cross is difficult. The message of the cross is difficult. One of the earliest pictorial representations of the crucifixion is this piece of anti-Christian graffiti that first arose probably in the early part of the third century. And um, if you translate what it says in those Greek letters, it says, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos worships his God. And it is anti-Christian graffiti intended to make fun of some guy in town named Alexamenos who worships a crucified Christ and it depicts Jesus on a cross with the head of a donkey. This picture really captures well what the early world thought of Christians. And in general, outside of the Christian fellowship, most people in the early world thought that Christians were among the most uneducated, boorish, stupid people in the world primarily because of this message of the cross upon which our faith is built, they found it ludicrous that a group of people would give all of their worship and stake everything they had on a guy who died a lowly criminal's death, the most public and vicious kind of spectacle. And these people spread a rumor, they say, that he beat death and he rose from the dead, but they could not believe the nonsense upon which our faith was built. 
And so there were a lot of philosophers who wrote scathing pieces of a very mocking anti-Christian rhetoric. And it shows you, it's sad that one of the earliest pictures we have of the crucifixion is against Jesus and is mocking what he did for us. See, it's not surprising, though, because crucifixion was one of the lowest forms of death. And for most people, it was clear that if you died on a crucifix, if you died on a cross, you had clearly done something so bad that the Roman government wanted to make a public spectacle out of you. In fact, they would often hold the prisoners until a religious festival where lots and lots of people would be out in the streets, and then they would hang the bodies on the crosses all along the public thoroughfares and streets, and they would show these people, this is how you die in the Roman Empire, when you are among the lowest and stupid and worthless, when there's no one to defend you, speak up for you, when you can't afford an attorney to get you off scot-free. This is what happens to you when you are inconsequential and do not matter to humanity. And little children will be walking down the street and see bloody people hanging naked on a cross on the street as a way of saying, kids, become someone, because if you're no one, this is likely how you will die. You will be discarded like rubbish from our society. And so the Greeks... The Romans, the Jews could hardly make sense of this, that the Christians would say that our leader, our king, our savior is a guy who publicly died on a cross in one of the most public and and widely seen executions in their history. Another reason that people find and found and still find the message of the cross so difficult is because not only do we pin it on an an event that they can't understand, but that what we say is, Jesus having died horribly on that cross, we are simply to accept in faith that that gift, that cleansing, redeeming work, was given to us without anything we have done on our own. That that work is received and we get the benefit of it simply by believing and transferring our faith in him. There was no other religion ever that made it so simple and so easy to find redemption. And as a result, people rejected Christianity as the religion of really... And this is that word foolishness that keeps arising in this text. The Greek word translated foolishness has as its word, as its root, the word moron. It is the word from which we derive the English moronic. When, when people were calling Christianity foolishness, you know how there's a, there's a difference between if I say, wow, you're pretty dumb, and we can go, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty dumb. Or I can say, man, you are a moron. And that has a very different force about it. There's no way to chuckle about that. or it, There's a certain depth of stupidity I'm trying to get at. When I say, you know, you're not just dumb. You've graduated from dumb. You've gone to grad school. You have graduated to... Uh, You are a doctor of moronic behavior and thinking. You are stupid at a special level. That's the kind of word the world wanted to use to portray the message of the cross. Because they said it's so stupid. It requires nothing of you. All you do is believe in just like that la-di-da. All the garbage, all the junk in your life is a race nailed to a cross with some guy. And just like that, you walk away redeemed, you go to heaven. That is the dumbest thing we've ever heard. What do you have to do? What is your role? How can we be so passive in the process of our own purification? How could it be possible? That's like saying you don't need to shower. Just walk into this room and go, I believe I'm clean. And you walk out and you don't smell bad anymore. It's that stupid to people. And so they level the accusation that this religion is dumb because we play no part in it. It makes the human being irrelevant and it makes God all important. Now, granted, we do receive actively the work of Jesus Christ, but we shouldn't make so much of our receiving Christ. That sounds like we're doing something heroic, but really we're receiving Jesus the way this drowning person in a stormy seas receiving the help of the Coast Guard. It isn't such a noble thing to go, you know what, I was just going to hang out here and die, but man, you want, look like you really want to help me, so I receive, I receive your help. Okay, high five. I really receive. <clears throat> That's stupid. To receive rescue doesn't denote any authority or nobility to us. 
All it says is we're sane enough to know that we are perishing and help is here. Who but a crazy person would not receive life in the face of certain death? And so, yes, we have an active part to play. We receive, but we receive what anyone would receive if they could see their true condition and know the help and the hope being extended to us in Jesus Christ. And so the very accusation that the Greeks and the Jews and the Romans level at Christianity, that it is too simple, too easy, too passive and stupid, we revel in that truth rather than fight the accusation. We own up to it because, in fact, that is exactly what makes the gospel such powerfully good news. You know, the Jews and the Greeks worked so hard at their religion. They worked so hard at at cleansing themselves, the Jews, through their rigorous obedience to a moral law, they were out of their minds trying to do exactly what was required. The Greeks, on the other hand, were working so hard at being clever, they would sit around on hilltops all day long, sipping tea and talking about ideas over and over. And every idea they discussed would yield more questions than answers. And this is how they thought a mind becomes cleaned and redeemed is through the sharpening and the incessant debating of ideas. You become purified and you you uh, achieve a place called enlightenment where you see everything. And in a context like that where religion was either trying really hard to be a good person or trying really hard to be a smart and enlightened person, You can see why so many people thought that the message of the cross was impossible for a thinking person to accept. There was a second century philosopher named Celsus who was most famous for writing all kinds of very, very articulate critiques of the Christian religion, but with a very biting, sarcastic, mocking tone to it. And here's one thing that he wrote about the Christians he observed in his time. Let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible. For all that kind of thing, we, speaking as Christians, count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, literally a moron in his language, let him come boldly to become a Christian. And Paul hears things like that everywhere. And instead of countering the charge, he embraces it. And he says, for the message of the cross is moronic to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, we can see that it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God, if such a thing exists, is still wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God, if it were to exist, is stronger than man's strength. What Paul is saying is that while the Jews demand miraculous signs and the Greeks want all kinds of wisdom and endless ideas, we preach Christ and him crucified, and this is the wisdom of God. This is the power. This is the central message. Because the the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans shared the same error as those who tried to build the Tower of Babel. They believed with all their hearts that it is possible, given enough effort, to claw your own way to God. It is possible if you try hard enough, if you think hard enough, that you can attain redemption by yourself. That in fact, the goal of religion is to be very religious. And if you're religious enough, at the end of it, you will get a gold star and live forever in heaven with God. Do you realize how different the message of the cross is? And that's why it says it's a stumbling block. The word there is scandalon. It's a scandal to the Jewish mind. It is a roadblock, a foolishness, a completely moronic concept to the Greek philosophers. And yet to us, it is clearly the wisdom of God. And so he says, hey. Where is the wise man, the philosopher? Where is everyone who thought that their wisdom could attain God? You Jews asked for miraculous signs, but Jesus of Nazareth stood among you and performed inexplicable miracles before crowds of tens of thousands. You saw the miracles. Did it change you? Your forefathers watched the oceans part. Did it change them? For all the insistence that we want to see things that make the hair stand up on the back of our necks to be impressed by things we can't explain. Do those things by themselves save anybody? 
And the resounding answer is no. People see things they can't explain all the time. But those miraculous things by themselves maybe make us a little scared, a little awe-inspired that we live in a, a different kind of reality, but they cannot save a person. And he says, where are all you philosophers? You understand that Paul had just come from Athens where he sat on the hill outside of Athens and, and had lunch all day long with these philosophers. And after all, he's kind of like, you dudes are like hamsters in a wheel. You run so frantically, yet you never get anywhere. For all your thinking and debating, you never actually are able to say anything with authority because you love the journey of question asking far more than the arriving at answers. And for all the wisdom of man, there is nothing that answers the deep emptiness in the human heart. The message of the cross is that Jesus did everything for us. You don't have to stop being a thinking person, but you have to stop relying only on your own efforts in order to see the wisdom of God in this. That through the cross, God addressed the one thing we were completely powerless to address for ourselves. And so the next observation I want to make for you is that the message of the cross is absolutely essential. Here's what Paul says. And remember, he's just coming from Athens where he grew really, really sick and weary of incessant debate and philosophizing. When I came to you, brothers, in the city of Corinth, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. Why not? Paul was capable of it. He's one of the most eloquent wordsmiths I have ever read. Every word, every participle, every preposition is carefully chosen. And yet what Paul says is, I didn't come to you armed to the teeth with really fancy words. My thesaurus wasn't out because he had just come from Athens where he realized the utter powerlessness of that approach of being impressive, of sounding really clever, that does not save people because the simplicity of the Christian message is often blocked. It's shielded by our own human prowess, our impressiveness, our, our cleverness. Sometimes in making too much of it, we occlude, we darken the simple message that Jesus Christ gave himself up for people who could do nothing to save themselves. So Paul makes a commitment not to build his ministry around anything other than this simple, foolish, moronic message, the message of the, Christ, uh, of, of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let me ask, why is the message of the cross so essential to Christian life? Why is it that it's so important we accept this? And I think the simple answer is that the message of the cross matters because the foundational primary problem of the human being is sin. The biggest problem we have is that we can become aware of God and yet have no way to approach him because there is something wrong in us. Much the same way that if you're a kid, and many teenagers are in this room, if you're a kid, you know when you're in, in good shape with your parents and that's when you decide, can I go to the camping trip? Can I go to my friend's paintballing party? You wait till your parents are laughing at a comedy show and they're happy with your report card and then you make the big ask, right, teenagers? Am I the only one who did that? I'm like, I'll just wait till my report card, I'll see all my A's. Hey, Dad, by the way, can you buy me a new car? Huh? What do you think? And, and that's what we do. We know when we're in good standing with our fathers and our mothers and when we're not. If you're married or you're in a relationship, you guys especially, or even dumb guys know, uh, I, I'm not in good shape right now, do I? I'm in the doghouse. My wife is mad at me. My girlfriend is ticked off at me, man. And so you, that's not the day you ask her, hey, how, how about if I go golfing this weekend without you? That's not the right weekend for that. And so we know instinctively when we're not in good standing and when that problem exists, when there is a break between us for whatever reason, and probably for good cause, you know, guys, when, when your lady is mad at you, she's probably justified in being mad at you. At least 90% of the time, 10% of the time, you all women are crazy. Okay? <laughs> Impossible to live with you, you are loco. But 90% of the time, you're probably right. We've done something heinous to deserve your wrath. And so as a result, there's, and teenagers, 100% of the time, you've done something bad. Just own it. <laughs> You're dumb. And so, so that's why your parents are mad at you. And when that problem exists, 
No matter what else you want to try to achieve, you can't go there because the relationship has a blockage that cannot be ignored. You can't say, man, I'm, I know you're so mad at me, but I want to talk to you about, um, about that vacation we're planning for next week. I want to talk to you about our kids' college fund. Even a simple mundane conversation will crash and burn because no matter what else you want to talk about to distract you, you can't get around this central problem. You and I are not good right now. You've done something. And that something you did was not just a little lover's fat. You violated the very essence of our relationship. Do you get what I'm talking about? Sin at its root. Some people have defined it as missing the mark. Hamartia is sin. And the imagery we often use is an an archer pulling back an arrow, and he hits like the the second ring, but he doesn't hit the bullseye. We say, see, you kind of missed the mark. That sounds so harmless. Yes, technically, that's the Greek underlying it. But sin is not just, oh, man, I almost got there. I planned a surprise party, but I accidentally let two people know, and they gave away the secret, and then my wife found out, oh, darn, almost. It's not that mild. Sin at its heart is very serious. And when we say it's a broken relationship, it's not a broken relationship between two friends or lovers who eventually go, all right, my bad, I'm sorry, a little fist bump, exploded, and then you're okay again. It's not that trivial. The relationship that's broken is broken between a creator God, a king, and his subjects. It's not a small thing where you say, oh man, my bad. It's like if you, if you bring a bomb into the Library of Congress and you have your finger on the detonator and you're like, I'm going to blow this place up. And then after a while, when all the guns are ended, you go, hey, my bad. I was just kidding, man. I, I, just, I was in a bad mood. You know, My wife yelled at me, and so I just needed to blow off steam. My bad. How many of the police officers are going to go, dude, I've been there. Don't worry about it. Just go out the back door. It happens to everybody. That will never happen, will it? Because there are certain violations that aren't just let's blow it off, let's call it the past the past, bygones are bygones. There are things you can do that with. But sin is not such a problem. Sin is much more serious than that. And we have found ways in our culture to minimize it and talk about it as I was so stupid. Hey, I'm only human. I made a mistake. It was an error and lapse in judgment. We have euphemized sin until it it sounds to us like just a little error, a miscalculation or miscalibration of my circuitry. And that's why Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. That's all sin is. I'm sorry, God. Oops, Ah, I'm so stupid. I did it again. I wish it were that simple because then Jesus could have spared himself a lot of suffering. But when you look at what God did, it begins to paint the picture how serious the problem was. Do you think if you had a hangnail and your doctor said, we really need to amputate, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it must just be a hangnail. Of course not. You've got a big problem if they're cutting the whole thing off. The remedy points to the seriousness of the problem. Sin is not a trivial thing. It has broken the relationship because sin at its heart is a rejection of the rightful rule of God, the creator king. The one who legitimately had the right to tell us how to live in the world that he created because we also were created by him. He has that right. And in sin, we reject that right. And we say to God, you know what? I, I, thanks for putting me here, but I got it from here. I don't need you. I will figure this one out on my own. And so the prophet Isaiah, I love the New Living Translation's rendering of this famous verse. Here's Isaiah's description through the Holy Spirit of the human condition. All of us, not just the serial killers and the rapists and the dictators, but all of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and the sins of us all. That is a beautiful concise portrayal of what happened on the cross. That every one of us rejected God as our king and decided at some point, I would be better off if I call the shots. And the resulting life was a total wreck. It was a mess. And it left an emptiness and this nagging sense that something is really out of tune in the universe for me. And God steps into a condition that we have no power to counteract And he fixes it 
through the moronic solution of his own son bearing our sin and guilt on a cross because he understood our condition and knew that whatever we tried for a thousand reincarnated lifetimes, we would never be able to dig ourselves out of this one. Moms, if your husband forgets to buy the milk at the grocery store, you can get past that. But if he forgets to bring your son home from the grocery store and he's never found again, I'll tell you, it's going to take more than a dozen roses to get past that one, isn't it? And that's not a joke, is it? It's a serious thing to go, I lost our kid. And you say, well, here's some flowers. We can make another one. You say, no, that's not how it works. This is big. It's going to take a really, really big thing to fix this. Because I can't just get over it. And God says, man, when you rejected me as king, I didn't just go, ah, they're kids. It broke his heart. It caused a rip in the universe for him. It made it so that we and he could not be together without that problem being addressed. I love what John MacArthur says in his commentary. Human wisdom sometimes sees the immediate cause of a problem, but it does not see the root which always is sin. It may see the selfishness is a cause of injustice, but it has no way to remove selfishness. It may see that hatred causes misery and pain and destruction, but it has no cure for hatred. It can see plainly that man does not get along with man, but does not see that the real cause is that man does not get along with God. Man's own sinful nature is the cause of his problems, and he cannot change his nature. Even if human wisdom could recognize the problem, it does not have the power to change it. But God has the power. I love that last statement. I've shown people so many things in counseling, and I thought, man, if they just know it, they'll be fixed. Is that true? Not in a billion years is that ever going to be true. We have enlightenment to see and even diagnose the problem, but we have no power. No power. And that is what Jesus supplied because only he could supply power great enough to make right the horrible thing which sin made wrong. Problem of sin at its root, and the solution of the cross as the only remedy leaves us with another problem as Christians, though. It's really hard to talk to other people about their sin. How many of you have ever tried to share your faith with someone, and everything was great when you're talking about, hey, wouldn't you love to have a better marriage? Wouldn't you like to have better health to get out of debt? Wouldn't you like to feel like your life is driven by a purpose? You know, when you talk about all that kind of stuff, people are tracking with us. But when you say, you know what, though, before we can get to any of that, the first big problem is that all of us are sinners and Jesus died on a cross to cleanse you of your guilt. And people go, hold on, hold on, hold on. I haven't kicked any puppies lately. I pay my taxes. I don't stiff the bill at a restaurant. I even tip generously. Don't come and tell me I'm a sinner. I don't like that language. I'm bad, I know, but I'm not the worst. There are a lot worse than me. And so when you start talking about sin and guilt and the need for redemption, then they'll say to you, listen, Jesus, thanks for dying and all that. Totally unnecessary. I didn't need it. I didn't ask you to do that. You didn't have to do it for me. So I appreciate the gesture, but it was wasted blood on me, buddy. Because the truth is, when you do the whole scale thing, I have more good than bad. And because of that, according to Tom and Jerry, those great theologians, I have more good than bad deeds. I will eventually sprout wings when I die and go to heaven. That's the way the universe works. Never mind that I have no basis for knowing that, except that's how I really hope it works, because that's my plan. More good than bad, we go to the good place. More bad than good, you go hang out with the devil. It's not really the way it works, though. And it's become popular today as Christians to minimize the message of the cross to minimize the language of sin and reframe Christianity and the central problem of the human race in other language. You often hear us talking about it this way. You know, there's this 
general meaninglessness, a purposelessness, uh, uh, a, an inward disconnection that we experience. Do you feel that, that longing, that wistfulness and emptiness for something you don't know? That's the central problem of humanity, is we're floundering, and we need a purpose that will drive our lives. Another way to talk about it is, you know what it is? The real problem is that we have broken relationships. We have a broken relationship with God, but we really have broken relations with each other. And so if we could just kumbaya, get back into community, love one another, do good, care about my fellow man, never walk past the panhandler again, but just help him. If we could just do that, then the world would be a better place and we'd be great. Another false gospel, another way to talk about it is the real problem of the human race is that systems and governments and cultures have been corrupted. People are selfish. It's a real problem. So we've got to fix the injustice in the world. We've got to take care of the fact that there is child trafficking for, for sex slavery in the United States suburbs. We've got to fix the fact that, that large corporations are constantly oppressing workers in order to make a greater profit for their executives. And so we start getting angry, and we frame the central problem as corrupted systems. Don't get me wrong. Sin produces all of those results. All of those things are a part of the world, but we cannot simply shift ahead to the results of sin and forget the central problem of sin and say that there's anything like a gospel that has been communicated. Jesus did not die on a cross to deliver us from corrupted governments and world systems. He came to deliver us from the primary problem of sin in me, the darkness in you and me, which drives all of that. And if you're awake with me and you agree, that is a place that we need to just say amen with the agreement of our spirits. This is why Jesus died. And if we lessen the message to make it palatable, if we use euphemisms to talk about sin, if we never call people to repentance, there is no gospel. Even at Harvest, we've talked about framing the gospel as restoration of shalom, the peace that existed when everything was the way it was supposed to be. But make no mistake, you cannot get shalom back without Jesus' blood and the repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is the message of the cross. Apart from it, there is no gospel. There is no redemption. It is absolutely essential to the Christian journey. And if you've joined the church because you are an activist and you're glad that Harvest cares about the environment, that we're mobilizing around injustice across the globe, I'm glad you're with us. But know this, you cannot project the problem onto the world and fix the world and ignore your own heart. Lost people cannot fix a dying world. You carry darkness with you everywhere you go. And you cannot push back the darkness of the world unless Jesus has pushed back and canceled the darkness in you. And if you're a Christian, you think because you have hung around the church long enough that it's probably the disease that you've caught by now, you could not be more tragically mistaken than that. This faith begins at the foot of the cross between you as an individual and your creator king. And it comes just as Jesus preached in his early ministry through the simple message, repent and believe. And apart from the confession of my sin, the owning of my rebellion against God, my rejection of Him, I cannot be a part of anything that God is really doing. And I hope that we as Harvest Community Church will always have that message firmly rooted in our hearts apart from Jesus' work on Calvary for us. Anything else we do is just playing games. So I hope that everything we do to fix the world around us has power because it starts with Jesus fixing that really big problem inside of each of us. And it may be that somehow God has used this message to reveal to you that, man, I've been around this whole movement for so long. Maybe you're a teenager and you're sick and bored of Sunday school. You're like, I know every answer is Jesus Work me up when it's over. Give me my DS. You would never be bored of Christianity if you understood how profound it really is. If you understood what really happened with Jesus, 
There's no way that you could be bored of this. The message of the cross is a message of radical transformation and new life. Let me just end with this verse. The New Living Translation gives us verse 30 and 31 this way. God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. He is the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy, and he gave himself to purchase our freedom. As the scriptures say, the person who wishes to boast should boast only of what the Lord has done. And can I just remind you as we wrap up the Lenten season, as we go into Holy Week and focus our hearts on what Jesus did for us, culminating in the celebration of Easter Sunday and his resurrection. As we engage on that week, starting with this Palm Sunday, can I encourage you to really reflect on what that means? That all the missions trips and the Bible studies you've led and the people you've brought to Jesus, all of that adds nothing to your righteousness. You will not pull that resume out in heaven and say, hey, on top of Jesus, check out what I also did. It will not matter one lick. It will give glory to God, but it won't affect your righteousness even one bit. The message of the cross is this, that after a lifetime of struggling to do what is right, even then, standing before God in heaven, the only thing you can say for yourself is, Jesus Christ did it for me. And that was always enough. It will always be enough. Everything I've done, is my joyful celebration of everything he has done. This is the message of the cross. This is, God willing, the only gospel we will ever preach at Harvest Community Church. It is the only gospel that leads to life. And if you've heard that, and you know that you need to come to Jesus and have this problem settled between you and God, this would be a really good day to do that and begin the journey. I'm going to ask our praise team to slowly make their way up here. I'm going to invite you in the seats. Let's just bow our heads and let's respond to the Lord a little bit. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) I'm going to be honest and very transparent with you. There was a season not too long ago where I think the enemy was seducing me as a pastor. And I was starting to get ashamed of the message of the cross because I started getting the sense that it's so dated, that it's kind of boring to people, that so many Christians have heard the basic mechanics of Jesus died on the cross, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like, what else can I add to it to make people interested in this? And I began to read books and learn different ways to talk about the gospel. And I really repent of that phase of my ministry. Because I've been humbled and broken in this realization that you cannot add anything that will make this truth more beautiful. There's a power in the gospel that befuddles me. That even if you think people aren't interested, even if you think this is a message from the 1850s, it is still saving people today. I just met a man who directs, he's the chief evangelist for InterVarsity. When he was born to atheist parents, they named him Rand after Ayn Rand, a great atheist mind. And they pumped into his brain from birth that there is no God, humanity is great and noble, and you will save yourself. And this man heard this all his life through college, a flaming atheist, and one day, In college, somebody clumsily spoke the gospel. The mystery, the power, the wisdom of God crushed every scaffolding he'd put up in his life to push God away. This is the mystery, the power, the foolishness of the message of the cross is when God is calling to you, there is no way to push him back. He will have you. 
And we don't need to adorn that message with anything snazzy. It is so clear and simple, and it saves. And so I now publicly say to you, I never want to preach another kind of gospel than that. But I commit to you today that I will only know Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And I will trust that message to call many people home to God. And if this message is for you this morning and you need to come home to God, it is as simple as reaching for the life preserver thrown to you in the sea. You will grow in your understanding of it over time. But at this moment, what needs to happen is a transferring of trust. Jesus, I can't work my way to you. And so I just accept in faith that what Jesus did for me that day will cleanse me and save me and make things right between you and me. I receive that and I cling to it as my only hope. And I'm going to give you a minute in quiet. If you need to pray that, would you pray it right now? God, I believe in faith some in this room just said that prayer to you. They have needed to say that to you for a very long time. And I pray today at this very moment as they have transferred that trust to you. That today, this very moment, all that guilt would be canceled. And all the darkness would be defeated. And the light of Jesus Christ would invade their hearts and bring a newness of life which immediately at this very moment would produce a joy they can feel in the deepest part of themselves. As though a heavy pack was taken off their shoulders and they are now free. And I pray that you would make that great work endure. That there would be no doubt, no second guessing, no fear, but an unshakable, lifelong certainty that what was once entrusted to Jesus will always be safe in your hands. And we thank you today for the power and the mystery and the magic of the message of the cross. The giants will fall to the message of the cross. And the most lost person we know can come home to the message of the cross. We believe you today and we thank you for what you're doing here. I want to also share with you that one of the powerful results of this process this week of reflecting on this passage has been a a very real resurgence in me of a conviction and a desire to share the message of the cross with as many people as I can before I die. And I don't want to wait forever and set the stage and plow the ground. I want to tell people that Jesus loves them and can take away that deep darkness and burden they're carrying. And I want to ask if you would be open to God and join me in experiencing this resurgence of conviction. The message of the cross is our only powerful message. And I want to invite you to commit yourselves along with me to speak it in faith to whoever will listen. I'd like to ask you also to pray with me for one final thing. The Lord has led me, He's given me a conviction to work towards creating a class that trains our people in sharing the faith. I will work with our other pastors to build this course, but I want to ask if you would pray for us because I really believe that for a lot of people, one of the reasons they're not sharing is because they feel they don't know how. 
And we really want to equip our church members to know how to speak the message of the cross to people. I've come across some wonderful resources that have energized me in this direction. And I believe God has given us good pastors at this church who can guide us in this. So would you pray for the development of this course and for all those many who I believe will take it over the next several years, that God would use that powerfully. I just pray for them. Lord Jesus, we are just speechless. When we think about what you did and how completely hopeless we would be if you hadn't done that. Without you, to know God would only be to know how lost and separated we are. But because of you, everything could start over. Everything can be made new. And I believe, Lord, that you are doing something powerful in our church. And that the message of the cross is the power that will drive this church And even next week, we will see that the power of the resurrection is also the fuel for our lives. Thank you for everything you have done. Let us never make much of what we are doing, but always rest our lives on what you have done. You are great. And we are privileged to know you. And we pray for any today in this room who in faith came home to you today. Help them, Lord, to share with someone soon what has happened. And I pray that you will grab hold of them and anchor them in this new faith. Even if the religion is old, may the faith be made new for them. And I pray, Lord, for any who have recommitted our hearts to speak the message of the cross that through us, thousands and thousands of people will draw close and come home to you. And one day, we will stand with all of those people in heaven and sing in an endless choir, thanksgiving and praise to God who saves. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.